Isaiah said, here am I, send me. He had no idea what that prayer was going to entail, but he did it. Good to see all of you. I want to just chime in with what uh, Johnny was talking about Easter. You know, Easter is the most attended um, weekend in the whole year. Christmas, it blows it out of the water. For whatever reason, people go to church on Easter. They don't even know why. Well, it's Easter, I'm going. Well, how come? Well, it's just because it's Easter. And so uh, inviting somebody is probably never easier in the whole year than Easter. So how many of you have got some in-laws, some outlaws, some neighbors that need Jesus, right? So here, here's what I guarantee you and promise you. They're going to hear the cross, the gospel, the resurrection, of course, and we're going to draw the net. And maybe that loved one of yours, that one that you've been burdened about for years, that spouse, uh, that child, that parent, uh, that friend, that neighbor, that co-worker. So just go ahead and come out of your shell and say, hey, I want to invite you to my church on Easter. It's not like any Easter service you've ever been in. It is not, uh, it is not dead. They are not God's frozen chosen. It's alive. And we're going to have a great time. Invite them to lunch afterwards. You know, make it a, make it a day to, to reach them out. How many of you are glad somebody reached you? Right? Me too. So really think about it because you have two and a half weeks to target somebody. Target them. Because I promise you their enemy already has. If they don't know Jesus, they're targeted. So may God target them through you. Sick them. Right? All right, we're going to finish First uh, Peter chapter 3. And we're going to get into some deep stuff tonight. It's really good. And I expect that I can uh, end in time to take about two questions. So if you've got a question, uh, a theological Bible question, I've already been on the air to the whole country tonight answering Bible questions, and I'm going to keep it up. I'm in, the, I'm in the, I got my mojo going. So if you want to ask a question, uh, just think about it. Don't be ashamed of any question. If it's a Bible question, ask it, and uh, we'll try to answer a couple of them at the end. How many of you are ready for 1 Peter 3 tonight? Amen? Now, tell your neighbor and say, he's going to talk about suffering. Now, I know nobody in here suffers. By the way, Cindy is suffering. She's, uh, I had to take her today to get a chest x-ray to see if there's anything going on as far as uh, pneumonia or anything like that, because she's really been sick. So pray for her, and we'll pray for her. As a matter of fact, Lord, just touch Cindy and heal Cindy. We give her to you and ask you to heal her right where she is. Let her sense the anointing of the presence of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So suffering is a part of the Christian life. Now, isn't that a a real statement of faith. That's not a very good confession, Jeff, but no, but it's true. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. So, Father, open your word to us tonight. Teach us how to respond to suffering as you gave it to us in your sacred, holy, inerrant word. In Jesus' name, amen.
Tell your neighbor, we're about to get into God's Word. Amen. Now, last time we ended with verses 11 and 12 in, in chapter 3, and they instruct us how to enjoy life. How many of you want to enjoy life and see good days? Well, Peter tells us in chapter 3, he said, here's what you do. You keep your tongue from evil and deceit. In other words, quit lying. Don't lie. Keep your tongue from evil and from deceit. Uh, turn from evil and do good. And seek peace. Seek peace. Chase after peace. Not discord, not trouble. Peace. Amen? Unity. Now, uh, we're going to look tonight, as I said, at the question of suffering, because Peter deals with it. Because if you've been with me from the start of this series, then you know that he's, he's writing his target audience. I don't think he ever dreamed that we'd be reading 20 centuries later what he wrote. But his target audience is a very persecuted, under-the-gun church. Um, Nero was the emperor. Crazy, insane, cruel. And he's persecuting the church everywhere. Torturing, killing, threatening, dividing families, all of that. Now, so Peter speaks to it, and he's going to tell the people by the Spirit of God how to respond to suffering they experience within the context of his will. What God allows. Okay? So in verse 13, he starts out, Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now, he's again, when he mentions who's going to harm you, he's talking about people persecuting the church. So who's going to harm you? If you're doing what is good. Now, he's giving a general principle. He's not saying, if you walk with Christ, nobody's ever going to harm you. That's not what he's saying. Here's what he is saying. If you live a good and a godly life, people as a rule are not going to seek to harm you. If you're a good neighbor, a good friend, a good employee, a good person, if you're kind and nice, people don't tend to target you for their hate. Unless... It's persecution. That's a whole different animal. Because in persecution, you are being harmed because you believe, because you are a Christian. And we're seeing that more and more and more in the United States of America. I've been preaching in America for decades. And I'm going to tell you, I've never seen anything like where America is right now toward Christians. The dial is being ratcheted up. It's getting hotter regarding persecution. In a way, that's probably a good thing. It's going to separate the real from the fake. Those that are just in it for whatever reason and those that are in it because they really love the Lord. But it's rising. It's rising. I read things every day. Persecution is rising. Um, Paul warned, yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? Persecution. That went over real big. Let's try that again. You see up there? Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we've got to ask ourselves, am I being persecuted? Anybody giving me a problem because I'm a follower of Christ? You know? 
Um, now next, Peter says, when we suffer, let it be for three things. The right reason, with the right reaction, and with the right resolve. If you suffer, if you suffer within the framework of God's will, if you suffer for the faith, um, I really believe we're going to need messages like this more and more in the days to come. You may need to go back in your notes a year, two years from now, and look at what we taught tonight. Because he's telling us how to handle it when we suffer for doing right, doing good, walking with the Lord. Verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, everybody say the right reason, Happy are ye, say the right reaction. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The right resolve. So, when you suffer for doing good, let it be for the right reason, right reaction, and with the right resolve. There's a right way to handle suffering for a good thing. You're you're suffering for you didn't do a thing. Wrong. Now, you got to remember, the man writing this, God is using to give us this word, was Simon Peter, who denied Jesus three times after his arrest. He denied him. But he's been totally transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. Let me tell you, if the Holy Spirit touches your life, you will never be the same. You will never. If you say to me, I know Jesus, I got saved, I'm going to be able to look at your life and see clear evidence. That that's true. Because if you got saved, the Holy Spirit came to live within. If he came to live within, there is no way you're the same. There is no way you're the same. Right? Peter's been totally transformed. In the book of Acts, we find him going to sleep the night before they intended to execute him. He goes to sleep without a melatonin and without a Xanax. Right? He went to sleep. He's sleeping the night before his execution. I call that having inner peace. Terror and dread that he had when he denied the Lord three times in front of a little damsel, a little young girl. No, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. And then blankety blank, I don't know him. But now he knows one day he's going to be crucified because the Lord Jesus told him so. One day, Peter, they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And they're going to do with you what you don't want done. And tradition tells us he was hung upside down on the cross because he said, I'm not good enough to be hung uh, right side up as my Lord was. Courage has replaced cowardice. What happened to him? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit turns you into another man, another woman. It totally, totally, utterly, he transforms. I'm a product of the Holy Spirit who came into my life because I turned to Christ. I wouldn't be up here without the Holy Spirit. I could never have pastored for 39 years. Give me a minute. Just give me a minute. That just hit me like a ton of bricks. Time flies when you're having fun. But I could never have done it ever. I'm a debtor to the Holy Spirit. Through Jesus Christ. 
Now, Peter continues with instructions on how to face suffering. He said, when you suffer in the will of God for doing right, sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Always be ready. Now, the first part's talking about your heart. Second part's talking about your mind. He said, first, when you suffer for Christ's sake, enthrone the Lord in your heart. Enthrone the Lord in your heart. He says, sanctify the Lord in your heart. That means you, you set the Lord apart in your heart. You, you set your heart apart for him. You have sanctified him in your heart. He's numero uno. He, he, is, he is your main, main thing. You, you, you suffer fellowshipping with him in your heart. Why am I suffering? Because I love Jesus. But then be ready in your mind. Be ready to give a reason for why you believe what you believe. Now here's where I'm living more and more and more. I'm, I'm answering people increasingly on um, why I believe what I believe, what the Bible says, why it's very reasonable to be a Christian, and why it's very reasonable to believe in God. And it's very unreasonable and irrational to believe in evolution or to believe that there is no God. No. To me, i got to crucify my brain if I go that direction. So he said, he said, be ready to give a defense. Have an answer. Well, here's why I believe in Jesus. These days, they'll pepper you with questions. You can't just say, well, because he changed my life. They say, well, Buddha changes people's lives. They'll say things like, you know, Hare Krishna changed people's lives. Uh, you know, um, different beliefs change people's lives. Why, why do you say yours is the one? Then you've got to give an answer. You keep coming on Wednesday nights, I'll, I'll equip you with it. I will. That's why we're doing Wednesday nights. That's why we're going through whole books. Now, the first part of the verse is a quote from Isaiah, and it means we're to suffer with the Lord enthroned in our hearts. And we're to have a reasonable answer in our mind for those who question us. Because we may be asked to explain why we're willing to suffer for the name of Christ. Why are you willing to go through this? Why don't you just give it up and, and don't be so radical? Cool it, chill. Step back a little bit. Be ready to give a defense in meekness and in fear, not condescendingly, but in meekness and fear. Uh, Peter, was, as he was writing, as I already said, Christians at Rome facing horrible deaths. Many of them have suffered the loss of absolutely everything. Think tonight. If because of your profession of faith in Christ, they came and took your house. They came and took your job. A lot of Christians in America have suffered that already. They'd suffer the loss of everything. Okay? A lot of them. They've been tortured, martyred. Read about them in Revelation 6. 
There's this vast multitude of people under the throne room of God crying out, when are you going to avenge our deaths? We see these people, and interestingly, they've been beheaded. Only one religion does that to folks. They've been beheaded, but they're martyred. And there's this vast multitude of martyrs under the throne in Revelation 6. When are you going to avenge us? He said, wait a little bit longer till the rest of your brethren who are going to meet the same fate, meet that fate. But the day's coming, I'm going to avenge it. Even their loved ones had been made human torches in the gardens of Nero. Do you know that in some cases, all they had to do was offer a pinch of salt on some pagan altar as a sign of renouncing their faith. All they had to do, a little bit of salt, go ahead and just sprinkle it on that altar of a pagan god, and we know you renounced your faith. And they would not sprinkle the salt. And their refusal and their courage in the face of death took the pagan world by storm. Pagan world couldn't calculate it. Why are they dying for this man called Jesus? And you know what? Uh, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. We're standing tonight on some really big shoulders. People who gave it all were willing to die, willing to be martyred. Their blood spilled for the name of Christ, but it fueled the church. And it was a testimony the Roman world could not deny. Now, Peter continues with advice on how to face suffering. Verse 16, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So notice good conscience. A clear conscience is so important. It's essential to your witness. All right, a clear conscience. There's nothing between you and God, nothing vertical, nothing horizontal with others. You're, you're clear. Remember when Paul said, men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. He said that in Acts 23, 1, and the high priest commanded somebody standing near him to slap him for saying that. I love how real the Bible is. He said, God will slap you, you white wall hypocrite. That was Paul. And he said, that's the high priest. He said, oh, I didn't know that was the high priest. I'm sorry. But he, he didn't like being slapped for something that wasn't wrong. He said, my conscience is clear. How? Through the blood of Christ. But it's so important in our warfare. It says, with a clear conscience, we wage a good warfare. You've got to keep it clear every day. Because if your conscience isn't clear, you've got guilt. And if you've got guilt... You have no power to testify. It will take your power to testify away. You will not be bold in the faith if there's guilt. So every day, I, I pray through the Lord's Prayer, and it, that makes me every day repent. Forgive me my sins, as I forgive those who have sinned against me. Lord's Prayer won't let me get 24 hours, more than 24 hours away from repentance. He taught us to pray that way because we got to have a clear conscience. No preacher can preach without a clear conscience. 
No Christian will witness without a clear conscience. And guess what? If your conscience is not clear, you won't pray. You won't pray good. No. Because you, you feel guilty before God. How are you going to go before Him with confidence if, you, if your conscience isn't clear? So he said, having a good conscience. So that when they defame you as an evildoer, uh, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed because they got nothing on you. Your conscience is clear. Our persecutors have no weapon against us when we've got a clear conscience. I'm not talking about living a perfect life. I'm talking about living a sincere life in Christ. All the times the Apostle Paul was taken to court over and over again, all the way up to Caesar, yet he was always so bold, never shrunk in fear. Why? His conscience was clear. Verse 17, for it's better if it be the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now do you catch that? That sometimes the will of God allows us to suffer for the cause of Christ. Sometimes we will suffer for the cause of Christ within the framework and context of the will of God. Well, why would God let me go through that? I'm glad you asked. As Peter told us in chapter 1, let me read it again. Be truly glad. There's wonderful joy ahead, even though right now the going is rough. King James says you're, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations and testings. But right now you're going through some rough times down here. These trials are only to test your faith, to see whether or not it's strong and pure. It's being tested as fire tests gold and purifies it. And your faith is far more precious to God than mere gold. So if your faith remains strong after being tried in the test tube of fiery trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day of His return. There's always a good return when we go through trials with the right reason, right reaction, and right resolve. Amen. We come out stronger, bolder, and better every time. Leticia, can we turn down the AC? Thank you. Business, sorry. I need an AC buzzer in my pocket, or right here. Now, um, next Peter turns and points to Jesus as an example of suffering. Peter says that first Jesus' suffering on the cross was redemptive. Everybody say redemptive. Why was he on the cross? It was redemptive. He points to his vicarious atonement. What's vicarious mean? In our place. Vicarious. He suffered in our place. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Here it is. The just him for the unjust us. That he might bring us to God. How would you come into contact with God Jesus brought you. How are you, did you ever experience the love of God in your heart? Jesus escorted you into his presence. He was the bridge over your troubled water. Jesus brought you to God. So he's hanging on the cross and his suffering eclipsed all other suffering. Nobody suffered like Jesus, but hanging on the cross, he did it in our place. Vicariously, in our place. 
instead of us in our stead. The Bible says he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Our Lord's life was marked by suffering. Peter points to his victorious attainment once he suffered, being put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive by the Spirit. And we're about to celebrate that big time in two and a half weeks. The vicarious atonement accomplished for us by Christ at Calvary's cross is the greatest reason for his sufferings. It's why he came. Son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. For this purpose, I was manifested. Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. What's the work of the devil, the biggest one? Death. He could have opted out at any time. He told us I could call on 12 legions of angels right now and they would come and whisk me out of here, but he didn't. He had come into this world with the sole purpose of dying for our sins, the just him for the unjust us, that he might bring us to God. His atonement was a plan worked out in eternity past. God knew the human race would be plunged into sin and that a rescue operation would be necessary. So when Jesus was born, first Christmas morn, the rescue operation was afoot. And it involved an exchange. Christ would take our place and exchange. And we would take his place and exchange. All of our guilt and sin and suffering and shame would be transferred to him. And all of his holiness and righteousness and goodness would be transferred to us. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh my, he would die so that we might live. And the ground zero of the exchange would be a cross on a skull-shaped hill named Golgotha. That's, that was ground zero for the divine exchange. So, are you laden down with sin? Go to the cross. Because if you go to the cross, you'll experience the exchange. You say, forgive me my sins. He says, you got it, because I took them on me already on the cross. Forgive me. And he says, and while you're at it, let me give you my righteousness. Divine exchange. And although he was put to death in the flesh, as, the Holy, as Peter says, he was quickened by the Spirit. Holy Spirit was active in every part of Jesus' life. You ever thought about it? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He ministered to others the power of the Holy Spirit. His whole life was bookmarked and filled with the Holy Spirit. He went all the way to the cross to die for you and me. I'm so thankful for the cross. I'm so thankful for the empty tomb. He rose from the dead that we too might rise at the day of his return. Amen? Now, we're coming now to one of the most difficult passages in the whole New Testament. I promise you. Here it is, verse 19. By whom? Now, you've got to keep track of the pronouns here. 
By whom? By whom? The whom is the Holy Spirit. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Peter is telling us the Lord Jesus upon his death went to the underworld to make a proclamation. We are told in the next verse who the spirits were that he addressed. So let me stop here just for a second, be sure we catch it. He's telling us here that when Jesus said it is finished and his body died, Joseph of Arimathea took him down, put him in the tomb. Where was he between the day of his death and the day of his resurrection? Where was he? We're told at least part of the time he was proclaiming to spirits who were in prison his victory. Now let me quickly blow one thing out of the water. It has been taught that Jesus was taken to hell and in hell he was tormented for three days and nights to finish the work of atonement and when he came out he was born again. Oh, I'm telling you, I ain't naming names but I can tell you it's been taught in a huge way. And it's so wrong. Because when he said it is finished, guess what that means? It's finished. He didn't say it's about to be finished. Let me get on to hell and finish it. No, he said it is now finished. And the very thought that Jesus had to be born again is heresy. Of the worst kind. Because that means he sinned. Because the only way you got to be born again is if you, you have a fallen nature. Jesus has no fallen nature. He never had a fallen nature. He never gave up his deity. He never ceased to be God. So the, that whole thing. So, but what did happen? Well, he went to an underworld. And here, verse 20 tells us who he talked to. Who formerly, now this is the spirits in prison. Who were they? Who formerly were disobedient. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. All right. Let's unpack this. First, the word for went. He, he went. He went. Is a Greek word that means to go on a journey. It's telling us that he went far. He went on a journey to a, a far place. What was it? It was the underworld. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. Um, so his journey was long and far. The word for preached is from the Greek word to proclaim. It is not euangelion, which is to evangelize. That's not the Greek word. It's the word to proclaim. So he didn't go down there to evangelize. Nobody's getting saved in the underworld. He went down there to proclaim. The spirits he addresses in the underworld, he tells us who they are. They were those of the disobedient population of the world in Noah's day. We call them antediluvians because they were in the antediluvian age. That means the time before the great flood. So when you hear antediluvian, you just know what it means. The time before the great flood. 
So the antediluvians are the ones who lived in the antediluvian age. And they heard Noah's preaching for 120 years. Peter tells us he was a preacher of righteousness. He called them to repentance and they did not repent. Not one conversion. Boy, I don't know if I could have lasted 120 years with not one conversion. That would deflate a preacher. But these spirits are said to be in prison. This word literally means a cage. Now, let's go a little deeper. Hang with me, track with me. There's four Greek words for the underworld. The first is Gehenna. Jesus used the Greek word Gehenna a lot when he talked about hell. But what was it? It was a real place in Jerusalem. It was a deep, narrow valley to the south of Jerusalem, Gehenna, where the idolatrous Jews offered their children in sacrifice to Molech in Old Testament times. So it was an accursed place. Because any time you kill your children, that place becomes accursed. It afterwards became the common receptacle in New Testament times. By Jesus' day, it was a receptacle like we would call it a city dump. Yeah, I got to fill my pickup and go down to the dump, get rid of this stuff. But it was really wretched. All the garbage, all the refuse of the city, and on top of that, bodies of dead animals and dead criminals all were thrown in to this place that burned 24-7. When I was in Haiti, we were ministering in Haiti, there's called the River of Fire in Haiti. And the River of Fire is real because they, they have nothing like we have. They have no... No cleanliness. Haiti was just mind-numbingly poverty-stricken. And so what they do, they go to this river and they dump all their garbage into the river. They light it on fire as it goes down the river. And all this burning trash is always going down this river. And it's called the River of Fire. And it it burns 24-7. Gehenna burned 24-7. And over time, it became an image, an illustration, a type of hell. And it's repeatedly, as I said, used by Jesus uh, to describe eternal punishment. Because the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies, as he has described hell. So he would use Gehenna as a living illustration for the people of his day to describe and illustrate hell. It burns, it's wretched, it's rotten. Don't ever be so dumb as to say, well, I'm just going to go down there with my buddies and pull down the back of the pickup and drink beer and talk about the good old days. Hello. No. You see nothing there. You find no one there. It's pitch black. Outer darkness. The rich man in Jesus' story went to Hades, and I'm going to talk about Hades in a second, went to Hades 
and immediately felt pain. I'm thirsty. Give me water on my tongue. Let me go back to earth and tell my brothers about this place so they can avoid it. So he had memory. He had awareness. He he was cognizant of his surroundings. Don't ever make light of hell. That's just stupidity talking. So Jesus used it as an illustration of the final judgment. So that's Gehenna. Now here's the second one is Hades. The second place, underworld. Word for the underworld. In the Old Testament, it's called Sheol. So Sheol or Hades, same place. Jesus saw that Hades consists of two different spheres divided by an impassable, impossible gulf. Okay? So in Jesus' story, you had the rich man in the bad part of Hades, and you had his servant sitting in Abraham's bosom in the good part of Hades. And he is told, sitting in hell, in Hades, in torment, it says, being in torments, he said, and he was told, you can't pass the gulf. There's no going there either way. So the other side is paradise. The bad side is Hades. The Lord himself went to Hades. Now, this is where he went. This is where he went. When it says he went to the underworld, this is where he went. He went to Hades at the time of his death, and he emptied the paradise section. I'm going to say that again. He emptied the paradise section. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the rest, they came out of there. When Jesus went down there to to the good part, he emptied it. It says he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So he emptied the paradise section. Um, You can read about that in Ephesians 4, 8 to 10. That's where he went. Now, third word is the abyss. And demons let us know about the abyss. Demon spirits. Remember when Jesus was casting them out? And they said, please don't send us to the abyss, watch this, before our time. It's also called the bottomless pit. That's the abyss. And you don't know much about it. I don't know much about it because the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about it, except that it's there. Fourth place for the underworld is Tartarus. That's found in 2 Peter 2, 4. And that's Tartarus is the prison where the fallen angels are held awaiting the final judgment. Tartarus. The entire population of Noah's day failed to repent. By the time the ark sailed, only Noah and his family were saved. So Jesus proclaimed his victory to those he was going to take out of the good part, and he proclaimed his victory to those that were in the bad part. Sobering, isn't it? So why do we preach the gospel? And why do we go for souls all the time? Because the moment that you go to that cross and the blood of Christ covers your sin, you are translated, or you are delivered, Colossians 1.13, you are delivered from the power and the rule of darkness, and you are translated to the kingdom of God's dear Son. Amen? And it's um, the single greatest, most important decision in all of life, bar none. What'd you do with Jesus? What'd you do with Jesus? All right?
Now we're closing. The chapter closes out with a word about water baptism. Verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Now he's not talking about baptism cleansing your body of dirt. That's not what he's saying. But the answer of a good conscience towards God. Now we're water baptizing this Sunday. Does water baptism save you? No. The blood of Jesus saves you. But what does water baptism represent? It represents that you are buried with Christ by baptism into his death. Your old life is buried with Christ. And you have been raised to walk in the newness of life. So we have been raised with him in his resurrection on the inside. All right? So he says when you get water baptized, you're testifying that you have come to Christ, and so therefore you have a good conscience. Your conscience is clear, right? Forgiven of sin. It says Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. That's where he is right now. Angels and authorities and powers are all subject to him. Now, let me tell you what an antitype is and we close, because we read the word antitype. What is that? An antitype is a fulfillment or a completion of an earlier truth revealed in the Bible, in the Old Testament generally. An antitype in the New Testament is foreshadowed by a type, its counterpart in the Old Testament. So that, for instance, the ark is a type of Christ. If you were in Noah's day, there weren't five ways out. There weren't ten ways out. There weren't two ways out of God's coming judgment. There was only one. Get on that ark. If you don't get on that ark, you're going to perish. It's a type of Christ. So when you get water baptized, you're testifying, I got into the ark, and I'm saved. Amen? If you're saved, that boat will float, right? When judgment comes. But is it not a type, the ark a type? Because there was only one way in that day. One way. He said, oh, there's more than one way. No, there's not. Jesus is the ark of the new covenant. There's only one way out of coming judgment. Because it's coming, folks, with a great ferocity. Are you in the ark? The manna was a type. The manna was a, a, a type of Jesus. He, he talked about the manna in the wilderness. He says, but I'm the bread of life. You eat of me, and you're never going to be hungry again. Drink what I'm going to give you, and you're never going to be thirsty again. The rock that followed them, Paul says the rock that followed them in the wilderness was Christ. The rock, what did it do? Out of a rock came water to satiate their thirst. Who's Jesus? He's the rock that doesn't roll. Amen? Jesus is our rock. Amen? Now, watch this. He's our rock. And what does he do? Out of him comes the water of the spirit of life. So, in the Old Testament, that rock that they got the water out of, that was a type. And Jesus was the anti-type. He was the fulfillment of the type. You get it? All right.
Let me take a couple of questions. You got to have a question after that. Here we go. We'll start with Robert right over here. Now I want some Bible questions, folks. Come on. Use your thinking caps. Put them on. Is that on? That's not on. See if it's on. Okay, it's on. How about now? There you go. Anyways, I am so thankful that you teach us the truth, all the truth. Thank you. We are all blessed from that. My question is, on Sunday's message, you were speaking of the first Adam Mm -hmm. and then also of Jesus being the second Adam. Right. I understand the Trinity was there and that Jesus was there. So, uh, and I didn't go back and look in Genesis to see, so I'm asking you, you know, to kind of help me understand that, because I never heard that before. The Bible, the New Testament, Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. All he's telling us is the first Adam, he was the head of the human race. Notice, we're not told when Eve ate, the whole human race fell. Is when Adam ate, the whole human race fell with him because he was the head of the human race. And the head of the human race failed the human race. Okay? So why he uses Jesus, the second Adam, as an illustration. That Jesus came to undo what the first Adam did. So as the second Adam, so to speak, he, he succeeded. He didn't yield to, you know, the lust of the flesh. He didn't yield to the lust of the eyes. He didn't yield to the pride of life. He never sinned. So he became redemptive. His blood and only his blood shed on the cross could suffice to cover our sins. So he's just using it as an illustration. Like if you Google it or Bing it, I Bing, I don't Google, but I know Bing's probably just as corrupt. But anyway, um, Google or Bing it and just say, Jesus, second Adam, and, and look it up. Just don't listen to anything Jehovah's Witnesses tell you about it. Watch out for what the cults have to say about it. But look for a good source, and it'll explain all of that about the second. And it'll show you where he mentions it in the New Testament, where Christ is the second Adam. Yeah. Yes, Jesus' blood covered sin uh, because Adam did the human race no favor. All, all he did after the Garden of Eden was procreate. And he lived to 930, something like that. Um, but so the second Adam succeeded where he failed. It's just that simple. Because of him, the, whole, the, the first Adam, we all suffer. Because of the second Adam, we can all have life. Amen. Amen. Yes. Yeah, uh, I've heard uh, lately about uh, some well-known Christians that have uh, renounced the faith. Yeah. And uh, I was wondering about, uh, I've also heard about the uh, concept of once saved, always saved. And I wonder if you could speak to that. So do you want, are you asking about the people who have renounced their faith? Yes. Oh, and are they still saved? Right. Okay, let me go here because this There's two things, backsliding and apostasy. Okay, people backslide all the time. Backsliding is, can even be where your heart just grows cool to God. 
you've cooled off to God and you've pulled back. You're not praying. You're not reading the Bible like you used to. You're out of church. And it's not very long when you get out of church before you start compromising. It's never a good sign when somebody gets out of church. Can I say that? We're only saying that because you're a pastor. No, but as a pastor, I've seen it so many times. I can tell you definitively, when somebody drifts from church, it's usually a little signal that they're drifting from God. And they're going to get in trouble eventually if they don't get back into the fellowship. Because there's a reason for church. Amen. And I'm glad for the people watching online. I don't know which, where they are. I don't see a red light. But wherever you are, I'm glad you're watching. But this watching can't replace church. Have you ever watched a fireplace on TV? <laughs> Have you? You watch that fireplace? Oh, that fireplace so pretty. But you can't feel the warmth. You can't enjoy what that a real fireplace gives. So don't tell me it's the same, because it's not. We need one another. So that's backsliding, backsliding. And God calls you back and you repent. Backsliding is also you get caught up in some sin. You get mixed up in an illicit relationship or drugs, or alcohol, or riotous living like the prodigal son. But God corners you. He surrounds you with a hedge of thorns. You grow very miserable in your backslidden condition. I've never known a happy backslider, ever. And it gets worse, and worse, because God loves you enough to back you into a corner and say, what are you doing? And you come back. But now, those who say, I don't believe anymore, and I renounce it, I want nothing to do with it, I don't believe they were ever saved. Because that's apostasy. Apostasy is very different from backsliding. Apostasy is, I don't believe anymore, I don't want anything to do with it, I reject it, I renounce it, I denounce it, uh, don't even talk to me about it. I don't believe it. I don't believe a true born-again child of God would ever go that way. You say, I've known some. Well, how do you know they were born again? A lot of people are raised in the church. Man, they know more Bible verses than a lot of us. But they never came to Christ. They were never born again. They had the head knowledge. They knew how to talk the talk and go through the motions, but they never really had a change. So I have to believe my Bible. My Bible says, Jesus said, if you truly come to me, no man plucks you out of my hand. Okay? No man. And any backslider I've ever known the Lord so faithfully backed them into a corner until there was nothing left but to ask the prodigal, feeding pigs, living in slop, all the friends are gone, all the good time friends have boogied, the money's all gone, and he came to himself. He didn't come to himself partying hearty. He came to himself 
when he got into the slop pig pen and his backsliding rebuked him. Now, that's where I'm at. So if they mean it, if they mean that and they walk away and they never come back, I, I just, I don't see how the Spirit of God can be in you and you can say that. Now, I've heard backsliders cuss up a storm. I've heard backsliders say some terrible things. But I've never seen a backslider renounce Christ and step on the Bible and say they don't believe anymore and walk off and never return. Never. All right, back here. Yeah, I have a, it's a simple question that after... Cain killed Abel. Uh -huh. He said he would be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Yeah. So then he said that, uh, well, that they would um, find him and, and, and kill him. But then God put a mark on him. Yeah. So I was just wondering what possibly was that mark that he put upon him, if you know. And then he said if anybody touches Cain, they'll be persecuted or whatever, 77-fold? Yeah, that's Lamech said that. Um, but now, the mark of Cain. So, you're wanting to know what the mark looked like or what it meant or? Yes, was it like a physical mark or just everybody? It was a physical knew. mark. It was visible. Because he talked about you can see it. It's interesting to me that um, how marks on the body particularly the forehead and the hands, you can find scattered throughout Scripture. So all the way back to the mark of Cain, it was on his forehead. And it wasn't to curse him, it was to protect him. Because God said, anybody that kills you, I'm going to deal with them. Now, he became a vagabond. I think one of the saddest statements in the Bible, it says, he left the presence of the Lord. He walked away from the presence of the Lord. That's the way the Bible frames it. That's sad to me. But that mark followed him the rest of his life. And nobody would kill him because nobody wanted to die for killing him. This was before martial law or uh, 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 the laws that had to do with murder, which came way later under Moses. So they didn't have civil law. Civil law first came after Noah landed on land again God right then began to give laws about if you kill somebody and don't kill somebody and don't this and don't that. And civil law began right after Noah landed uh, on land again. But until then, there was no civil law at all. And Mo Moses, of course, greatly expanded on civil law. So, um, so all God could do was mark him because this is way back in the ancient beginning of men. So he had this mark on his forehead. Then, you know, you go forward to the Revelation. Here's the revelation, and what does the devil want to do? Put a mark on your forehead and on your hand. So he wants to mark you. So God marks and the devil marks. And then you see that the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, 12,000 of every tribe you find in the book of Revelation, they're marked by God on their forehead. I just found it interesting. That's free. It didn't have anything to do with your question. But it's interesting to me, God marks, the devil marks. Um, but I think the mark of Cain clearly was just to protect him and save his life. Every, you know, when he met his 
future wives, they had to look at him and say, what's that? And he had to explain the mark. Everywhere he went, there it was. There it was. What'd you do? Killed my bro. But if you touch me for it, God will kill you. It's not a mark you want. Let's do one more. Is there anybody else? One more? That's it. Let's stand together, everybody. Amen. How many of you are glad you came to the house of God tonight? Amen, amen, amen. All right, Father, we just thank you right now for the touch of the Lord. Thank you for the blessing of God. Lord, thank you for showing us how to respond to suffering when we suffer in the context of God's will. Thank you, Lord, for being with us, taking care of us, sustaining us and comforting us and strengthening us in our sufferings. Thank you, Lord, that you're very, very near to returning. Help us, Lord, to make a difference for Christ in this terminal generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You're dismissed.